Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Not with me today is Nadia Oxford. She is busy doing Black Friday stuff, and I am recording a little earlier than I normally would because Thanksgiving starts tomorrow. It's going to be a slightly shorter episode, maybe just slightly, and I'm just taking a moment to introduce the show before we head into our discussion of the next Top 25 RPG episode uh as usual busy week over on us gamer um as of the recording of this episode which would be uh several days ago by the time this episode goes up uh we got a big report dropping on the site about diablo 4 which uh, was pretty interesting um especially the fact that apparently diablo 4 uh, blizzard is working was originally conceiving it as almost like dark souls which i think would have been interesting from a blizzard context but man can you imagine the uproar if that had actually happened uh, there's been a a few false starts you should go check out uh that article i mean as usual jason Schreier doing an excellent job of breaking all that down beyond that um we have a look back on Warframe and its journey from just another free-to-play shooter to one of the best games of the generation. Uh, Mike did an in-depth hands-on on Super Smash Brothers and talked to Nintendo about that. And I have a nice little article about my quest for the perfect heist in Red Dead Redemption 2 and what that taught me. And uh, Nadia has a meaty Ocarina of Time retrospective. It was the 20th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina Time last week. Uh, as usual, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina Time is not an RPG, but it's pretty dang close. It is a pretty excellent action-adventure game with puzzle elements and, and that kind of thing. So go check out her article there. Uh, as usual, you can find us on all of the social media channels. I'm at the underscore Kappa. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And follow us on USGamerNet. And all of that. If you want to comment on this episode, drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Uh, send me a message on Twitter or drop me an email. I got a couple of nice emails from readers just recently saying that they really enjoyed the show. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review over on iTunes. So, okay, we're going to continue on to talking about number 10 on our top 25 RPG list. Don't go away. Okay, it is time for the top 10 of the top 25 RPG countdown. We've been going at this for a while, and this is like kind of an exciting moment. We are going to begin to unveil like the, the big one, the part of the list that I feel like we really kind of have to get right. And I think that we are starting with an all-time classic. Number 10 on our list is Baldur's Gate 2, widely regarded as one of the best RPGs of all time, possibly one of the best D&D RPGs of all time. And here to talk about it with me is Troy Goodfellow, who, when I showed him the list, he said, Baldur's Gate 2, it has to be that one. (laughs) Well, as I recall, you gave me the choice between this and Planescape, and they were both, you know... Spoiler alert, Planescape Torment's going to be on this list. Imagine the odds. (laughs) Uh, what a shock yeah. and there are two games that I know that both came along I mean I'm one of those people who believes that you know great games speak to you because they come to you at the right moment in your life these types of games came along at the right moment in my life for me to really appreciate what they were doing and uh, Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Om or Shadows of Omen or Shadows of Omn 
depending on what you do with your MN there at the end, it really uh, is a landmark, I think, both for Bioware uh, and for RPGs in general. What was that moment in your life? Take me back. This was, God, uh, the this was late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and you know, I've been getting back into gaming really, really heavily. Uh, I had some time. As I was doing. I was just working my PhD, so I had lots of time uh, just going through grad school. Uh, and my then wife, uh, my ex-wife now, but my then wife was a lapsed gamer, but she wanted to, she wanted to play too. So she started getting into uh, PC role-playing games, starting with going back to some of the classics, like Betrayal of Crondor. And then she found uh, Baldur's Gate sitting for sale in our local store, and she picked it up. And at that time, she was going through um, carpal tunnel issues. So I would drive the characters, and she would give me instructions. So she would be barking the orders, I'd be filling them out for her. This whole Bioware thing, and all of these games, you know, Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2, and then the companion games from Black Isle, the Icewind Dale games, uh, and then eventually Neverwinter Nights, they, they became sort of, they became really big parts of our household. You know, the, the, we'd pick up sayings from the game, we'd pick up quotations, we'd refer to the games over and over again. They were a thing that we shared, and I think it's, it's you just have the beginnings of a communal internet where people are talking in these ways in like the late nineties. Uh, you know, forums are starting to pick up. Uh, Usenet is dying away, and because it's more user friendly, so it's easier to find people to talk to about these things, to find tips, to find advice. Um, and I think the Baldur's Gate game, the Baldur's Gate games, and the Bioware uh, engine games came along at the right time for this. For people to come together, play the games together, share the experience, and talk about the experience in a very important and active and engaged way. Uh, you know, my ex eventually became a big-time Neverwinter Nights uh, dungeon master. She designed her own dungeons and all of this stuff. And I think it really came through, that became a big part of her life and her pastimes and her relaxation because of what the Baldur's Gate games did and what they meant to her. Uh, in ways that, you know, I mean, she, she loved KOTOR and she loved all the other Bioware stuff, but nothing really spoke to her or I think even to me as much as Baldur's Gate did. Yeah, and this was a really special time for RPGs. I've talked about it before, but the, the late 90s was an amazing time, both on the PC and on console. On console, we had Final Fantasy VII and such revolutionizing how we saw JRPGs here in the West. And on PC, we had games like all-time classics like Fallout, Planescape Torment, Deus Ex, Baldur's Gate 2. Uh, it, it was an amazing run. Yeah, it's, it's there's a lot to be... I mean, Bioware had something special with these games. And I think because they were such faithful translations of a system a lot of old-time role players knew... Um, there had been D&D games before. I remember, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the old gold box and silver box D&D games from uh, the 1980s, you know, the SSI games, the Dragonlance stuff and the Silver Blades games. And they were all right. Um, but the the pseudo real-time, the possible real-time nature of the battles in the Baldur's Gate games and the Icewind Dale games made the D&D system come to life in a really interesting way. Uh, Baldur's Gate 2 took the... It, it came out, I think, right after a new version of D&D had come out, or right around the same time. I might... Uh, time's a little bit off here, because there's always a new version coming out. 
So it had all of these different, all the different classes and all the different rules, and there was a magic's arms race going on throughout the game. So it really did feel like you were engaged in high-level D&D combat. And if you were someone who grew up with D&D and was familiar with how that could feel in a tabletop setting, really nothing had come close in a very, very long time to matching that experience. So did you play the original Baldur's Gate? I did. Well, we did. Yes. So what was your impression of Baldur's Gate 2 when it came out? Like, I know for a lot at the contemporary reviews are just like, wow, Baldur's Gate 2, man, it takes everything that Baldur's Gate 1 did and just does it so much better. I think the first thing that hit me was just how staggeringly big it was. Um, the game, we measured games in hours, uh, probably still do. And it was, I, I think, easily twice as large. Uh, as far as time and uh, areas to explore, as the first Baldur's Gate was. Uh, and it starts in a really interesting way. I mean, the first Baldur's Gate starts with, I mean, I can't have spoilers for a 20-year-old game, but here we are. Uh, the first Baldur's Gate starts with, you know, your uh, adoptive father gets killed in a crossroads, and you're an orphan, and then you've got to go and find your way uh, out in the wild world. You know, a very traditional RPG setting. Um, and you start low level, and you kill your rats, and then you become a god. Um, but Baldur's Gate 2 starts with not in, in, sometime there's been a, like it has been an interlude in between the two games. Your character has been captured with your party. You're being tortured and experimented on, and it's a it's a, this prison break thing, and you're still very powerful. You're not bumped down to level one, whatever level your character was imported into, or you can create a new character. And you start strong, and you're surrounded with some pretty good equipment um, that you can find. You can't always identify it, but you can tell it's magical and quite powerful. And your party members you can find are still quite powerful. So you're already, you know, taking down, uh, you're taking down demons, you're taking down Atyas, you're taking down, you know, dark dwarves and stuff at the very first mission. So you can tell this is going to be a huge adventure just from the first crap they throw at you. These aren't, you know, kobolds and giant rats. Um, and then you step out, you escape out of the prison, and one of your party members is whisked away, and you have to go on a f GoFundMe spree trying to get enough gold raised so you can pay off one of the brigands competing for your loyalty, saying they can get your f friend freed from the magical prison. And it's, it just sucks you right in immediately into a high-stakes mystery where you don't quite know what's going on. Uh, it's not like uh, the other RPGs, even the first Baldur's Gate, where you know there's a big bad who's dominating the area, and you've got to take him down in the end. Uh, so you go down through all these mini-bosses all the way through. Baldur's Gate 2 is a lot more episodic all the way throughout the game. Um, each of m Many of the quests are just there for you to meet new people or to raise the gold to pay off <coughs> whoever you need to pay off. The 20,000 gold to continue on to chapter... Uh, I mean, chapter 2 is just super long. You have to raise because you're raising all this gold to get through chapter 2. Um, so the, the, the size of it, this, the different venues you travel to um, and you can tell right from the very beginning with the stakes and you're presented with and all the wizards teleporting in telling what you can and cannot do that you are a somebody that you are 
a powerful being expected to do powerful things. And that was really nice to see and not something that was quite common in RPGs then. I'm not sure how common that it is now. I'm still just stuck on magical GoFundMe campaign. I, I do like that idea. <laughs> and aren't all RPGs magical GoFundMe campaigns one way or another? Sometimes those contributions aren't exactly, I don't know, um, consensual, but what can I say? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Baldur's Gate 2 um, launched in 2000. It was developed by BioWare. Um, and it probably really helped that BioWare wasn't developing the Infinity Engine uh, in conjunction with the development of the actual game so they could focus on uh, on actual content. And God, did they really load content into this game. You mentioned that it felt gigantic. I mean, this game was like... 300 hours long if you did all of the content uh, the main story itself was on the order of like 60 hours it was not a short game um it subsequently it launched in 2000 it subsequently got an expansion called throne of ball which i don't think is especially well remembered i remember uh my ex-wife finishing it while i was out of town and being very annoyed very annoyed. Yeah, Why is that? Well, because she finished it and I wasn't there to see it. <laughs> she played through all. You were all very all. annoyed. I was annoyed. She she was fine because she got to play her game, uh, but I didn't get to see how it ended. So I still haven't, I still haven't played Throne of Ball. Oh wow. Okay. I mean, and even now, after all these years with the enhanced edition out and everything, I don't have time for games. <laughs> I barely have time for the games that we publish, uh, let alone twenty-year-old games. That's okay. I don't have time for them either. And I write about them for a living. But uh, the, the thing that's interesting about this, so it is a Dungeons and Dragons game. It's set in the Forgotten Realms, which is one of the most popular settings in uh, the Dungeons and Dragons world. Um, it is based on the AD&D second edition rules. And it was, those were the rules that po- institutionalized Thacko, I want to say popularized, but I don't know if Thacko was ever that popular. And that is to hit armor class zero, basically if your attack roll is higher or equal to your Thacko minus the enemy's armor class, you hit. Apparently this was a house rule back in the days of like AD, uh, the original D&D and then AD&D, and it was eventually codified into for, uh, AD&D 2nd edition. Troy, did you do a lot of Dungeons and Dragons playing? I did a little bit in college, uh, not a whole lot, cause it was very hard to find a group that wasn't full of awful people. Uh, the perennial problem, uh, but it is you know something that I've 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 always had friends who were into it, so I was always aware of what was going on. Um, and even now, like I have you know I have the I have the documents, I have the manuals, but I don't play a lot. I do remember uh, you know reading a lot of stuff about D and D because I was into gaming, and it was into th- there's always a discussion over you know called Thacko, what a stupid way uh, to calculate armor. Uh, but it's you know, one of these legacy things. It just sticks around. Um, and I'm sure there are still purists out there who think Thacko is the right way uh, to roll for an armor hit or not. Um, but I was, um, I was to prepare for this, I, was, I, I decided I would, I would roll a new character and try to remind, refresh myself as to how these things go. And uh, one of my friends uh, says his favorite part of Icewind Dale was the character generator uh, and he would never actually play the game. He would just keep generating characters over and over again. Um, and it's kind of the same thing you could get into with uh, 
you know, Baldur's Gate 2. Um, and we see this in the new Pathfinder game as well, where you know, a really good character generator just offers all of these new amazing options, the things you can do. Uh, it doesn't look really all that outstanding in today's uh, RPG character creators. Um, Baldur's Gate 2 was so faithful to the uh, second edition stuff. I mean, I was wrong about a paladin because I'm a classic white knight. And oh, what kind of paladin do you want to be? <laughs> there are like five or six different paladins. I forgot. Oh, cavalier. I forgot all about cavaliers uh, and all of these different types of paladins. Like, and you cannot just be, you know, your super squeaky clean knight. You can be a paladin of evil and all of these uh, other options. And you could all of the way through, you know, the illusionist options. So are you good or evil? Oh, I'm always good. I'm always a good character. I have a, I have a very hard time playing evil. Yeah, me too. Um, I don't know if you've been playing Red Dead Redemption 2, but it required a real shift in my mindset to be intentionally evil because, I don't know, when I'm playing an RPG, I just never go evil. I have, I'm not playing RDR. I don't have a PS4. Uh, but uh, yeah, RPGs, I'm always choosing the good option. I'm always, you know, getting the kitten down from the tree. And that's just the kind of person that I am. Uh, well, it's the kind of person I would like to be. And I try to re- reflect that in uh, my RPG playing. And, you know, Baldur's Gate gives you lots of options to be, you know, the hero, you know, saving Aerie from a circus. Or um, each of the each of the classes has their own special set of subquests. Some of the fighters and paladins, they can have a, a fortress to protect. And if you, you clear out the fortress of baddies, then you get the fortress. Then you rule as a just king or just lord over your manor. Now, all these little quests coming in for that in the Everlarge chapter two. And I was always taking, you know, the very best, most positive, just options. Yeah. Baldur's Gate 2 is interesting. Uh, I don't know how many RPGs do this, but it picks up from the original Baldur's Gate in more ways than one. Not only can you import a character, it basically starts with the characters already being fairly powerful. There's not really the kind of reset that you see in a lot of these types of games. Often you'll be playing a sequel and for no particular reason, all of a sudden they're very weak again, even though, you know, you got the ultimate infinity armor and the best sword plus one in the previous game. Well, the the weapons of Baldur's Gate 2 are often, even at the beginning, are often stronger than the original Baldur's Gate. And I found that to be a pretty bold design choice in an RPG um, of this scope. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's kind of, in many ways, the start is kind of a classic RPG uh, trope. The the party is captured and thrown into prison without all of their weapons and armor. Um, that happens in so many, so many RPGs. Um, and in this case, yeah, you don't have your stuff, but it's a, it's a wizard's uh, lair. So you can go around, you can root through his stuff, you can root through his, his uh, chests and cabinets, and you will find, you know, good magic swords. Um you know, plus one, plus two stuff. Um, the armor's pretty mediocre, uh, but the, the weapons are, are really good. And you'll find something for every class uh, that you might run into. You'll find bows and you'll find slings. And it's almost like they were waiting for you to, to, to break out. So, but so you don't have, you know, the your equipment isn't imported, but you, your characters are. And you start with, you know, some, some of the more powerful party members from Baldur's Gate 1, you know, Minsk, uh, and uh, Jahara, you know, Minsk is famous. He's a the 
great fighter with his hamster, and Jahara the Harper. She's always very powerful, uh, able to you know cast some healing spells when necessary. And you have Imowen the Bard uh, helping you detect traps, and she can detect traps very, very well. She's going to detract and detect most of them successfully. Uh, and so it's you do feel like this is just I just need to get out of these rooms. I just need to figure out the maze instead of feeling like I'm going to die at any moment. Yeah, uh, it also introduces three new classes: uh, the monk, the barbarian, and the sorcerer. Uh, I take it that you didn't really play any of those. Um, I don't like monks because I think swords are better than hands. Uh, <sighs> Racist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorcerer has there's always an interesting idea. I've never actually played a sorcerer, uh, but I've seen them played. Um, so yeah, you get some crazy, pretty crazy spells, uh, stuff like chain lightning and everything. You always gotta love when a high level sorcerer. Yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, it's fun to experiment with these sorts of things. It'd be nice if there was, uh, you know, a little arena area where you could try out uh, characters. But you know, maybe for my next RPG when I make one. But it also introduced uh, half-orcs, uh, dual-wielding katanas, uh, subclasses for pretty much every class. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of customization in this game. It really did feel like they, they dumped the rulebook in, um, in so many ways. Uh, in some ways, partly to the game's detriment in a bit, and that is what I think with, about the, uh, the how many of the encounters would play out the same way, because that's how good players would play them out, and think specifically of... You would encounter a magic user, and they'd have all of their shields up. So you'd have to start with your piercing stuff and all these things to get through the the mage's defenses first. That becomes your priority, and you know that's great, and that's what is what would happen in a D and D campaign. But it did feel like, especially for the uh, as you move on to the higher levels, you're fighting the same battles over and over again because you always need to take the first initial steps. Um, and because you know you have to, to have to pierce the spell wall, like rid of all of the repair, repel missiles or repel magic damage, and all of these magical defenses that every smart D and D player would definitely have before they went into combat. Uh, but then you encounter them as a player going into this game, and it feels like, oh crap, not this again. Um, <laughs> uh, which I always found a little bit annoying. I mean, so for some people, I'm sure that's that's part of the tactical mini game. That's part of the part of the puzzle they need to fix on getting their mages into position and protecting their own mages so they can get their their defenses up and also their offenses out. Um, I find that a little tedious, but I'm sure some people really, really love that. So from a story point st- standpoint, um, like a lot of isometric RPGs of that age, you're dealing with gods and monsters, basically. Mm. But I'm curious, like, Bioware is famous for having a really like great cast, like very memorable characters. I mean, we've highlighted some of them in our discussions of Mass Effect and Kotor. Um, tell, kind of walk me through Baldur Gate, Baldur's Gate's two's cast, and how do you think it stacks up compared to some of their later work? I think that I mean, I think John Irenicus is often he's the villain. Uh, the antag- main antagonist uh, through uh, Baldur's Gate 2, and I think he's often given short shrift as far as uh, RPG villains, uh, Bioware villains. I mean, he doesn't have you know, Cryo's Great Majesty from KOTOR 2, but he does have this pseudo-tragic love story, ambition story. He falls in love with the Queen of the Elves, then he tries to become a god, and has to be cast out of Elfland. 
uh, he loses his soul. It's a very dark and tragic story. Um, and you can he and Alpho left Elfland together. Yes. It's Sorry, that was a disenchanted reference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that show. Uh, there's so I, I think he is a very interesting uh, villain. I think he does have. He has. He certainly has more motivation behind him than I want to conquer the world that Saravok did in the first Baldur's Gate. Um, he has this. You know, he he wants to be a god. Everybody wants to be a god. You know, why not? Uh, he's he, he's a torturer. He, I don't want to be a god. I want to just be a, so you know. You don't, I I love. You want to be a god? It depends yeah. on the worshippers and what kind of sacrifices they offer. I guess we'd have, have to work that out in the book. It's all about the sacrifices. Okay, it's, it's, it's got to be the right kind of cow. Uh, Troy likes his human hearts fresh. <laughs> they they can just offer me barbecue ribs. I'm fine. Um, and uh, I mean, Ironicus is. He's clearly a villain. They don't try to make you feel sorry for him, but it's clear that he and his sister have been through a lot. His sister becomes a vampire, and he becomes this twisted guy trying to find his way to godhood. Um, he does a lot of really bad things, but he does. There is a motivation, and it's understandable uh, motivation. He becomes somebody you want to take down, but you know you get the hints that he was once actually a pretty decent guy who just uh, got sucked in uh by the appeals of you know magic and deity um and that's it's it's a common story i think in a lot of rpgs i think this is a theme in a lot of a lot of jrpgs as well uh you know the person who just wants to become more than they are and just loses their mind um i really think he does stand out with some of bioware's very very best villains even I mean, the Baldur's Gate series, I think it's clearly the best and the best drawn. Um, a lot of the the NP, a lot of the party members don't quite make the same impact that they did in the first Baldur's Gate. And I think that's because some of the first Baldur's Gate people are coming back, and they're always much more fun because you remember them. But also, there are so many more party members to pick up in Baldur's Gate Two um, that it's hard to get a good feel for. Uh, where they all fit, except for you know the person with their inevitable betrayal. Uh, this is always an inevitable betrayal. There, uh, many of them aren't as well drawn as in the first Baldur's Gate, but a lot of the characters you meet in your quests, you know the the dragons and the characters in the Underdark, a lot of the Drow uh, uh, characters uh, stand out. The game is so big that each you know subquest on your way to the main quest has somebody giving an interesting monologue uh which i think is you know typical bioware and this is, i think this is the first bioware game that had romances where you know rom has become such an expected part of the bioware formula now that it wasn't in all of their games but baldur's gate 2 had you know one you know male character for a female uh uh player uh to seduce and like five or six uh women that are male character uh, could seduce because that's the way games were. Games were in the nineties, um, and I think this was the very first game that had you know dialogue options leading to a romantic uh, conclusion. Um, and that has so you would have little students learn more about you know Ari or Jahera or Viconia or whomever uh, you were approaching uh, for romantic interludes um, and get some interesting bits there. So, which character did your character end up dating? I was kind of a 
mushy, weak weirdo. Uh, Got to commit. Persona uh, 4 no, taught me I, that much. I committed. I, I chose. I chose. But I chose. I, I chose a airy. I chose, you know, the damaged circus girl. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, that's the white knight in me. Got to save the dams, Linda Stress. You know, that's someone who's probably more of a pushover. Uh, not that, I mean, not that I've been attracted to pushover women in my real life. Uh, but, you know, something about it in the fantasy world sort of spoke to me. I don't know what it was. It's, I mean, I'm sure a therapist would have a great time with it. All of the women I've dated have always been, you know, formidable, strong, intelligent, powerful people. And Aries, you know, kind of this uh, such a sweet little girl who's hurt and she's always looking up to you. I mean, um, and it's just, it's kind of cotton candy sweet and nothing like anyone I've ever dated. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of who I ended up with. Well, do I have some OA RPGs for you? But. <laughs> Uh, another thing that was kind of interesting about Baldur's Gate 2 was multiplayer co-op. And thinking about... So I, I think Baldur's Gate 2's multiplayer co-op was kind of notoriously broken um, in mm. some ways. Uh, but at the same time, I like the sentiment behind it because, frankly, we need more multiplayer RPGs in our life. And we've got Divinity Original Sin, uh, Dragon Quest Nine back in 2009, I thought did it tremendously well. Uh, but yeah. otherwise, they're relatively few and far between. It was kind of a dry run for Neverwinter Nights, wasn't it, in many ways? Yeah, I, I would say so. Uh, I mean, but at the same time, like, RPGs, we tend to think of them as these super single-player experiences. But in fact, they are the most multiplayer co-op experience that you could possibly have, dating back to the days of the tabletop adventure, where you had a dungeon master setting everything up and laying out the story for you. And a party of adventurers working together, figuring out how to get past traps and monsters, communicating, building up their characters. I feel like so many of uh, RPGs like lose that element. And so it only makes sense for me uh, for a game like Baldur's Gate 2 to have that. Well, yeah, I mean, they were trying to be as faithful as they could to the you know, the second edition rules. I guess it makes sense for them to make the effort. I mean, we I never tried it. I have no idea. I did hear it didn't work all that well. No, uh, it didn't. <laughs> I was the late 90s. But, you know, you gotta appreciate the ambition of it, I guess. Yeah, it was the kind of thing that you would be playing maybe with your friends over a LAN if you were doing a LAN party. Did you ever play Baldur's Gate 2 at a LAN party? I did not. <sighs> Alas. Maybe maybe a missed opportunity, or maybe something you could do to, now, though you don't really have to do land parties anymore, sadly. The day of the land party is done. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we still do them sometimes for our media events. Uh-huh, that's true, that's <laughs> you know, true. You know, you have a bunch of media in a room, and that's, that's as close as we get to land parties these days. I mean, I've been to land parties, but I can't remember the last one. Certainly not for Baldur's Gate 2, but for RTSs it was very common. But never for an RPG, you're right. Oh, maybe Diablo. Maybe Diablo. Yeah. Certainly Doom. Yeah, Diablo 3 just came out on Switch, and I think that will be getting a lot of people into multiplayer dungeon crawling. But um, And, of course, like most PC RPGs, Baldur's Gate 2 has a lot of mods. So many mods. And to the point where like some of the mods I, I believe are considered canon by the fans because they just are seen as essential how much did you end up modding Baldur's Gate 2? Oh not much not much at all I mean even still back then I was more of a 
strategy war game person than an RPG person, so I wasn't, um, it's my, RPG my second favorite uh, genre, but I was never dip, dipped too deeply into uh, the modding pool. Uh, did I miss anything really important? I mean, there's a huge number of mods out there, like a ridiculous number, and there are people, there are some that the fans definitely consider essential. Like, I would encourage people to, if they want to try Baldur's Gate 2 again, to go and research them. Um, in the meantime, I'm actually not much of a modder myself, because, like, I think the biggest exception maybe is, say, Skyrim, because when I got my PC, my current PC, I really wanted to try... P- Skyrim and all of its graphical glory and so I got like Mm -hmm. every single graphical enhancement that I could possibly find but I didn't get too many of the gameplay changes like there's one in Skyrim that revolves around uh survival like kind of a built-in survival mode with a lot crunchier elements and I I respect the hard work of these modders and I think many of them are really excellent but there's always that layer of amateur amateurishness i suppose um to the design of it that kind of takes me out of the world and ultimately i'd rather uh be able to go with the professional tools and everything that the developers can bring to bear one thing we always do with this top 25 rpg list um troy is we always pick out the best moment in these games and i mean you really like baldur's gate too there are so many memorable moments what for you is the best moment? Uh, I think, you know, the battle in the Tree of Life. Um, it's just a really great setting. Uh, the stakes are there. The score kicks into high gear. Uh, it's a very powerful encounter. I, mean, I think I think, I think it's one of the best opening set pieces of any of the Bioware games. Like if I could just say, oh, the, the opening escape is great. But I think the, the climactic battle, the Tree of Life... Uh, in the elven city of Slundsar or whatever its weird uh, LV name is. Um, I really, that just, you're fighting on the branches and it's, it's not the final battle, but it's like the almost final battle to try to keep the tree from being poisoned. And I, I just think everything builds up to that moment in such a nice way. Uh, because, you know, Iranicus is a real threat at this point and, Trying to save elvmanity. Elvmanity. No, that's a word. Elvenkind. There we go. No, we're going with elvmanity from now on. God, God, my brain's broken. Elvmanity. I I really think that's the that's those are the moments that stand out for me. How about you? Oh, I think the the first moment that John Arenicus breaks out of spellhold is pretty amazing because it really establishes him as just you know a total badass, right? And and then there are. Our much later point, I believe the protagonist ends up kind of losing their soul, which is a little embarrassing. And (laughs) 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 you don't want to lose your soul. Uh, It's it's a big moment in the game, I I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the. It's one of the the, the the plot reversals where you think things are going great, then you lose that, and you have to fight to get it back and do more quests. All the while, you know, being not quite human, uh, and I think Emma one happens to her too, I believe as well. Uh, so yeah, that's really that, that is a really really great moment. So one of the key metrics I have when I'm making this list is inevitably I always try 
and look at the RPG and think of it, does it hold up? How does it hold up? And some of the games on this list definitely hold up better than others, but ultimately I'm looking for games that still have a fan base that we're still talking about to one degree or another. I think that we're still talking about Baldur's Gate 2 to this day. People are already very hyped for Baldur's Gate 3. And um, as somebody who really enjoys this game, why is that? Why is it held up so well, given that I mean, if you want to break it down in the most basic way, if you want to be really reductive, it's just a D&D licensed game. Yeah, and but it's it's weird, isn't it, how all of these companies are trying to remake, re, trying to, you know, recapture that magic. We have, you know, Obsidian's uh, Pillars of Eternity games, and we have, um, they all have the Infinity Engine look. And yeah, we have Baldur's Gate 3 coming out. We have remasters of the Baldur's Gate games. Uh, there was something about them that I think it's not simply part of its nostalgia, but I don't think it's simply nostalgia for Baldur's Gate 2. Uh, I don't think you know the Infinity Engine necessarily holds up that well. I'm not sure the isometric look uh, is really the best way to do these games these days. Um, but Baldur's Gate 2 was its its scale uh, was super impressive. It, it did. It felt like a major long campaign you are running uh, with your friends. There was just there were so many choices, so many options. Um, you could have different experiences depending on the class of the character you were playing entirely, or you know um, which of the uh, funding options you took at, in the opening chapters. Magical go go fund me for Elvmanity. Exactly. God, I'm f- full of bad words today. Uh, it's it holds up because it is. I think this is the game that made Bioware Bioware. Um, you know, Baldur's Gate One was was great. Uh, it was a great game. But I think Baldur's Gate Two is what showed what Bioware is capable of. That is, you know, very large, very deep, uh, in some ways emotionally uh, rich uh, role playing games. It, it just happened to have a D and D license because. If you're going to sell a fantasy RPG in those days, it would be very hard to do it for the PC without some sort of license attached to it. There really weren't that many. Are um, you saying that MDK2 didn't put bi- make Bioware what it is today? It's, you know, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> you uh, certainly do. And Bioware was definitely really leading the way at that time, right? I mean, we have a lot of love uh, for Black Isle Studios. They, they were pioneers in their own way as well. Yeah. But uh, in so many ways, Black Isle and Obsidian were following in the footsteps of Bioware. Like, Bioware would lead the way, and then they would come in and just like, well, here's our take on it. And there was a, a wonderful kind of give and take between these two uh, massive RPG studios in the 90s. But I, I think Bioware's calling card at that time was just, they would put out a wonderfully realized, in-depth world with massive scope one that you wanted uh, to go live in. And uh, Baldur's Gate 1 was, I mean, a lot of people would say was transformative um, in the way that it was accessible, for sure, uh, compared to previous PC RPGs. Uh, PC RPG hardcore people from the 80s would probably grumble about uh, Baldur's Gate making it too accessible. Uh, Nowadays, we would see Baldur's Gate as being extremely hardcore, but yeah, it made things accessible. It introduced uh, these choices that were went far beyond. The, well, are you going to join the good guys or the bad guys? Like it, there was, there's a lot more gray area in there, and often you would have to be thinking really hard about 
what's the right decision? And uh, that's what you want in an RPG, right? Yeah, and then if you go into, you know, Baldur's Gate 2 throwing off a ball, I mean, what I did see of it, what I know of it, I mean, a lot of it falls into what does it actually mean to be, you know, the child of the god of murder? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, that is actually an interesting question. Uh, you know, find out that you're not just uh, the first Baldur's Gate, you don't find out you're just a, a, a demigod, you're the spawn of one of the worst and the cruelest gods there are. Um, and Irenicus tries to, you know, get that god power out of you and then throne of ball is about what does it actually mean uh to be uh the child of murder and there's this whole arc all the way through uh that i think makes the Baldur's gate games stand out and i think they've you know kind of been overshadowed a bit by bioware's uh you know more mature games like knights of the old republic and uh, mass effect uh but god i mean i think Baldur's gate 2 really really holds up as their masterpiece so yeah, so Bioware, so fair to say, Bioware's magnum uh, opus. I mean, uh, KOTOR put Bioware on the map, I would say. Like, we were talking about this uh, previously, and it's still a magnificent game today. That's why it's on the top 25 RPG list, and God, I wish they would make another KOTOR. You suck, EA. Um, <laughs> and Mass Effect gave it a truly mainstream following in a way that I don't think Bioware had ever really had before, because, I mean, it was a shooter. But... I don't think either can come close to topping basically the sheer depth and quality of Baldur's Gate 2. I mean, Baldur's Gate 2 was uh, Bioware just leaving it all on the line, and they weren't making an engine. They weren't, uh, unlike unlike uh, with Mass Effect, they weren't dealing with the Unreal Engine for the first time, for example. Um, they were able to craft so much content and really go out there. And in that respect, so when you look at the entire... A catalog of Bioware RPGs, and I mean, there are a lot of them. Three, three of them are on this list. Uh, Baldur's Gate 2 maybe stands above them all. All right, so that's Baldur's Gate 2. Uh, final thoughts, Troy? Uh, I'm really glad you invited me on to talk about this. This is a game I don't get to talk about RPGs a whole lot uh, because my podcast is mostly about uh, tanks and swords. Yes, uh, uh, but I mean, it's fairly related, right? I mean, because uh, well, you... yeah, there's very we off. There's there's a lot of blending between the RPG and strategy worlds, which I really love. Uh, but it's great to have a chance to talk about one of my all time favorite games. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome, and it's been fun to be in this business uh over the years because i missed out on baldur's gate 2 uh the first time uh mostly because i mean i was a japanese rpg player console rpg player in in the late 90s and so i missed a lot of these games and but having the opportunity to go back and revisit them uh was really cool especially with the enhanced editions so and i I think that baldur's gate 2 uh really now has a, a pretty remarkable legacy for, as I already said, a, a, a licensed game, a game that uh, ultimately does uh, reach back to the very roots of where RPGs came from uh, with the D&D license. But okay, so we that is number 10, Baldur's Gate 2. We'll be continuing on probably next week with the next one in the line. We'll finish this list eventually. I mean, in 2019, I guess. Uh, but Troy, uh, tell me a little bit about your podcast and where we can find you. Uh, my, I, well, I, I co-own a podcast uh, with uh, Waypoints Rob Zachney called Three Moves Ahead. 
It's about strategy and war games. I'm not on it as much as I used to be because I'm a busy, busy man. Alas. We have a lot of great pan- but we have a gr- lot of great panelists talking about strategy and war games at Three Moves Ahead, and you can find it at threemovesahead.net, part of the Idle Thumbs Network. Okay, Troy, thanks for coming on the show, and we are going to quickly move on and wrap things up. Thanks to Troy Goodfellow for coming on the show, and we are going to be going on vacation, a nice little four-day break after a long review season, and also, of course, Black Friday is happening, uh, will have happened as of the recording. I hope all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family. I hope you guys didn't have to go out and work during Black Friday. Um, And I hope that you had the sense to not go out and uh, stand in line. Uh, It's much better to maybe enjoy all of the turkey and all of the fixings. But hey, I'm not going to tell you how you're enjoying your life. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate all of you guys who have been listening to us uh, over the course of a well, this is the 183rd episode of Acts of the Blood God. It's longer than any of my other podcasts. Um, I'm thankful for all of the RPGs we've had a chance to talk to. I'm thankful for the guests who have come on this show to talk about RPGs with me, including Nadia, Troy, uh, Mike, Katie, everybody on the U.S. Gamer staff, um, and on and on and on. And, um, of course, I'm thankful for you guys uh, for continuing to support the podcast Thank you very much. So, Axel Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. We're actually on Spotify now, or should be. I submitted it just the other day. So, if you want to listen to us on Spotify, you should. And if you're joining, listening to us on Spotify for the very first time, welcome to the family. Make sure to subscribe and put it on your podcast machine. We will be back, as usual, next week to talk about even more RPGs, including number nine on our top 25 RPG list. But until then, I've been Cat Bailey and for Troy, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring.